Hello, everyone. Redcoat here. I've got uh, Sientir and Dusty with me, and uh, we're continuing the podcast series uh, that we started uh, just last podcast. Last week for you, probably, if this has come out on time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> on time. Two minutes ago for us, maybe. <laughs> yeah, you just got a little bit of a look into our method. <laughs> uh, the, way I, the way I put it is We're close enough to Valve We get affected by their time sometimes <laughs> uh, Their gravitational warping effect Oh god no <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Today's topic uh, We're going to be delving a little bit more Into the development process of Highway to the Moon And specifically we're going to be talking about um, The subject of Building the game engine from scratch so, if you may recall, I mentioned that we did this uh, last week, and the reason why being the proliferation of free or affordably available, shall we say, engine, engine tools, tools yeah. I guess, a middleware uh, like Unity and that sort of thing, was not quite where it is now when we started uh, back in 2011, 2012. Yeah. So, being that we had a budget of goose egg, <laughs> uh, we decided to embark on our own engine. Also pushed along that route by our experiences at DigiPen Institute of Technology, where you do that sort of thing regularly. Yep, that was the case. Yep, wouldn't even have been my first engine. It would have been like the third engine since I was at DigiPen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, granted, I wasn't that much of a programmer, but at least I'd experienced managing teams on engines up to that point, sort of. This was a very different ballgame, to be it, sure. It turned out to be one of the big things that really changed that up was uh, a desire to try to build in flexibility to the structure, I'll say. So that's where things like the tools came in. So we had a, a very tool-centric design. We'll get into that more later when we talk about the tools themselves. But the impact on the engine meant that we had a lot of areas where things effectively slotted in externally, uh, where the tools would make data that the engine would then read, which meant that we had to support a lot of flexibility. So there wasn't much... Uh, hard-coded, which is where you just put in stuff into the code, and then the code's like, okay, that's exactly what it is, as opposed to the code saying, what do I do in asking some external file? Yeah, so actually taking a, a step to the high level, I suppose. So looking at the concept of, of building an engine from scratch, there's mm -hmm. there are some intrinsic you know, strengths and weaknesses to this. One of the obvious uh, weaknesses is that uh, time, time Very and much so. effort. Yeah, it requires a lot of time, a lot of effort to build an entire game engine, graphics engine, uh, input engine, everything else required. Uh, yeah, like data management becomes this huge thing that you really have to be very certain of. Yeah. And so there's a huge time and effort element that goes into that. But one of the strengths of building your own engine, it might be a kind of a smallish one, but it's the fact that you have full control over what you can and cannot do. And importantly, you know what it can and cannot do, and you know how yeah. to change it. Or you know you can change it to do what you need it to do, and you have some idea of where to go to make those changes. This is a, as opposed to something like Lumberyard right now. I don't, we're, we're looking at it, and I don't know how to actually get, change its physics engine if I need to change its physics engine. But in our game, it wouldn't be that hard. We have a physics system. You just We know where to go to make the changes. Yeah, it's a difference in where your research time gets spent because there might be points where you get to that uh, idea of like, okay, so there's this thing that I need to change in this engine. And then you spend a couple weeks trying to figure out where that change needs to happen and then you realize you're still drawing a blank. Uh, and then you have to make some queries there. It's basically the freedom of your design is the big pro you get the ability to, within reason, 
do a lot of the things that you want to do as long as you have the technical capacity to make those things happen. Yeah, but there is the downside uh, that sometimes it can be very difficult to figure out how to do things in the engine that you're working on. Um, and there are definitely a lot of limitations that came out of the idea of we'll make our own engine that modified how the design worked. In some cases, I think that ended up being very beneficial overall. Mm -hmm. um, and it led to, say, happy accidents, I guess. But it does have an impact that way. And it also means that some stuff that seems like it ought to be easy to do may not be as easy to do as you'd think or other things where in a middleware engine that's a bit more... Uh, general you would have probably an easier time doing certain things but maybe a harder time doing others so the more common something is the more likely it is to be relatively straightforward to do relatively is there for a reason in that middleware engine and to add an addendum to that you also get the idea of specialization versus non-specialization most yeah. middleware engines are pretty non-specialized their like unity will wrap itself around just about anything but if you want to make a 100 percent fighting game you kind of have to beat Unity into a fighting game engine. It's not designed to do that. Or you want to make a shmup, you have to kind of squeeze it into the shmup area, where in our case, we built an engine for shmups. So it does a lot of those things for that. Yeah, it it does that thing, and then it kind of just does that one thing only. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, that's the other downside, right? Is, you know, with a lot of middleware, the middleware is made to be able to be used on all sorts of different things. And so, you know, you get that after that first time of figuring out out exactly how it works and how to understand it you're like okay well let's let's try making a making a first person shooter with this thing and you know you have a little bit of a learning curve but then eventually you get you get first person shooter it might not be the exact shooter that you wanted to make but it's still it's still a thing where you've you've cut your development time considerably Meanwhile, on our engine for Highway to the Moon, the only first-person shooter you could conceivably make would be the original Doom, and that's only because that's not actually three-dimensional. It's two-dimensional. Yeah, I could go into that. I'm just not going to. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, one other note about you know doing the development in 2011, because that was part of the reason why we, we went with making a, an engine from scratch, because it was, it was cheaper. Uh, things hadn't quite gotten to their affordable level, uh, the affordable level that they are now. Uh, moving on to that, so one of the things for the engine that we built, um, or rather, these two guys sitting uh, to the left and right of me, yes, I just gave you a visual of that. Just imagine it. Three heads, one in the left, one in the right, and then one in the center. Yeah, that's me. I'm the center guy. Yep. Uh, so they built the engine out of uh, C++. So uh, Dusty Stanter, why don't you give a little a, a brief rundown of like you know why why did you choose C plus plus? So there's a number of reasons why any particular programming language in the first place, and that's kind of the starting point you have to get at is what is a programming language and how does it function? Uh, and what a programming language is is it's a set of instructions that tells a computer what to do, uh, which is mostly move data around for the most part, perform some math on it, and move it around. So a lot of what coding is, is it's telling the computer what data to move where and when. And how, specifically. <laughs> yeah. So uh, programming languages kind of exist on a continuum between what's called high-level and low-level. Uh, high-level is languages that uh, tend to be complex from a machine standpoint, but simple from a human standpoint. High-level languages tend to have statements like select 
cows from farm and it gets you all of the cows of the farm and it's pretty straightforward it's easily understandable in english there's not a lot to it while under the hood it's actually doing something where it's going through the entire table called farm and finding every single cow and returning another table of cows right Um, each instruction from a human standpoint looks simple but from a machine standpoint contains a lot of steps And low level is going to be the reverse of that, where from the machine standpoint, each instruction is fairly simple and is things like add, move, jump, push, pop. (laughs) Yeah, pop. And the human has to be like, okay, so I see this thing here. What is this telling me? Okay, this is a jump statement. Okay, it's going back up here. Oh, okay, I see what it's doing. It's saying, do this three times. And it's like, it takes a bit to process that, as opposed to, for example, one of the more middle languages. C++ is... um, is, low, low middle. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a low middle. And so it's it's got a higher layer where you can say for variable i equals zero, and then you keep going until it counts up, right? So that's something where you look at it, and it's a lot easier to understand what's going on. And then C Sharp is a little bit higher than that. It uh, abstracts. For each, for as an example. Yeah, for each is nice. Um, the big thing there is it abstracts a lot of data management, that C++ does and so you can keep going up higher scripting languages tend to be a bit higher scripting basically meaning that the computer figures out what it actually means in computer language as it's doing it yeah basically scripting languages are languages in which you have an engine the programming engine interprets the script you've handed it and it then does whatever that tells it to do which might be slightly different because it can each computer might interpret it slightly differently. Right. They tend to be a bit more easily portable as opposed to what would be referred to as native code, which is where uh, typically this is done with a compiled language, which is where a compiler, which is a separate program, looks at the code that you've written and turns it into machine language, uh, which is going to be platform specific. So um, in a scripting language, you have an interpreter, which runs on top, which means if you make it an interpreter for a machine, then it can run that script, right? And can work with that language. Uh, So you tend to get portability benefits, but it tends to be a lot slower because it has to figure out what it's doing as it's doing it. All right. Before we drown in in, uh, jargon jargon and languages and all this stuff, to sum it up, kind of, C++ was chosen because of... Uh, Flexibility and power, mostly. Um, It fits right in that spot, as we're talking about that continuum. It fits low enough that you have the ability to do the things that you need to be able to do and manage the stuff that you need to be able to manage while resting high enough that you're not spending ages staring at assembly language, which is like the lowest that anybody ever programs in, uh, trying to understand what it was that you were thinking when you wrote this particular line and then extrapolating that into some understandable logic. (laughs) That about sums it up, yeah. (laughs) Okay. So with that, I wanted to move on to... uh Oh, uh, one of the things. So, Dusty, you did the graphics. I uh, did the original graphics engine. Seen here, modified it quite a bit later on, especially once once uh, we turned the engine from single thread to multi-thread most of the way through the development cycle. Any notable encounters? Anything that um, stuck out in your mind during those early points? I, I had to learn OpenGL. <laughs> <laughs> that was painful. I, I was not a graphics programmer by any uh, form of the imagination. <laughs> 
I am a systems switchback debug programmer. I like debugging and fixing older systems and so forth. Uh, graphics programming was something entirely new for me. Uh, learning OpenGL was interesting, to say the least. I've, <laughs> I distinctly remember sitting there for three hours and going, why is it doing, oh, OpenGL does, does YX, not XY. <laughs> and I think it also renders with Y going up the screen. Yep. <laughs> and, and Windows, for some reason, goes Y going down the screen. Yep. So you have to invert everything. and then, So you invert everything as a matter of course. And then you realize that Windows is doing it the other way. So the invert was already destroyed. So <laughs> Yeah. It's like, why is my game appearing upside down? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the other note, considering that we noted the pros and cons of building the engine from scratch, uh, some of the specific fallout from that as we move forward. I know one of the things was just in general, since this was the first time that this engine ever existed, there wasn't really anyone else that we could talk to if for some reason something went wrong. It was just, is there an answer to this problem? Does this problem look like somebody else's problem? No. Oh dear, that's about three weeks worth of research right there. Yeah, the actual low-level graphics engine stuff that comes up is not one of those things that comes up a lot on Stack Overflow. <laughs> yeah, just on that idea of limitations and things like that, especially early. Uh, so if you may uh, recall from the last podcast, the game Highway to the Moon, which is what we're talking about, stars a guy on a motorcycle. And so we had to solve the problem of having a guy on a motorcycle. But we also had to solve the problem of keeping the motorcycle on the road. And one of the issues that comes up with that is how do we handle potentially if we want to have gaps in the road or things like that. Mm -hmm. So Redcoat's initial vision was to have the character, I guess, perform a jump on his bike sort of thing. Yeah, it was... Um the vision in my head, and um, some of you guys out there, some of you old school gamers might recognize this this visual. So the vision in my head was having the player character basically enlarge and then shrink to give the idea that he's actually rising and falling, which would engender basically that there's timing on your jumps, which means you have a lot. Um, it does a lot of things to the rhythm of the game. The problem, of course, being that enlarge and shrink Right. Now, scaling, which is what we'd call that, in and of itself is not difficult to do. You just say, hey, this thing is scaled this amount. And it's like, okay, cool. The problem is that, remember that thing about a guy being on a motorcycle? Right. So we had to figure out a way of compositing a sprite together of a dude on a motorcycle so that way he could do things like move his arms, particularly because that's how he aims. Because we're also aiming in all directions. If I remember correctly, at the end, his sprite ends up being like, what, like, Six parts? Six, six, it's six parts, yeah. like 16 to 20 animations. <laughs> so let's see. There's the bike base. Uh, it's the bike base, his the two legs, arms. Or like his body, yeah. his arms, which is there's two arms and his head. His head. And yeah. his hair. Yeah, and his hair. Yeah, well, his hair. his hair was part of his head. I thought it was, I thought it was a separate layer. Uh, no. Whatever. But anyway, so there's multiple layers. So the thing that's tricky is you have to keep his arms attached to his shoulders, and scaling that would have been uh, challenging. Because when you add rotation to scaling, and w when you add rotation and uh, translation to scaling, things get a bit wonky. <laughs> yeah, and this was very early in the development, so it was a bit beyond what I was willing to embark on. Uh, and the result of this was phase. The phase mechanic was made because jumping seemed like too difficult of a thing to implement at the time. Yes, and it changed a lot about how the game functioned. <laughs> yeah, the entire game is built around the phase mechanic. And that's one of 
one of those things that I mean by happy accidents. Another one was the way that dialogue and story is presented in the game. The initial vision that Redcoat had was a traditional sort of dialogue box would pop up and, mm-hmm. you know, there'd be a talking head there and they'd say, uh, I don't know, like, Alex, I will get you this time or something. But but then we found out that, you know, oh man, putting OpenGL fonting on top of everything else going on was taking too long and was being really annoying and didn't scale well to the fact that we already we had the screen scaled any size. So unless you had perfect vector fonts, which we did not have specifically installed for this, it did not work because the the, the, the big the part was really I was badly. like it was one of those things I was like I'm not implementing that right now and it got kind of pushed off and never happened. Yeah. And uh, Redcoat happened upon another solution that we'll probably talk about another time. Oh, yeah. We'll hit that at a later point. It was a pretty interesting solution. but yeah. It was. I like the uh, the ramifications. It's just things like that where on the surface is like, yeah, that should be really easy to do. It's like, yeah, it should be, but it wasn't. And so you have to learn to work with some of these weird little niggly bits. Yeah. Um, or, or sometimes it's not even, that's hard to do. It, sometimes it's, we have these 12 other things we really need to get done right now where we, we need to have the ability to build enemies, road, blah, blah, blah. And we decide that we're going to put off fonting for six months. And then six months roll around and we're like, oh man, we want to release in a year. We want to release, you know, in a week. Uh <laughs> oh okay we'll do this other thing that we'll just nobody built that system oh yep yes yeah. and that actually brings us to oh, one of the last points for today's one which is so we built the engine from scratch and one of the unfortunate things about this one was uh we didn't have a TDD or even technical, technical design, design document. document yes <laughs> yes you guys uh you guys are on top of that one <laughs> and each other <laughs> but yeah a technical design document which that's the the general gist of a tech design document is that it lays out okay here's the language we're going to use here's the methodology we're going to go behind it the way we're going to phrase things in there um just a set of guidelines so that all of the coders are on the same page and moreover that we know how we're going to implement all of the different pieces of the product yeah it also helps uh with outlining what all of the different systems, modules, whatever you want to call them, all the different parts of the code end up needing to be. Things like, okay, we need AI. What's that going to generally look like? Or things like that. We didn't have uh, much in the way of planning. There was uh, some game design planning that was... It was never looked at. <laughs> Not routinely really. ignored. <laughs> we, uh, we weren't a very good team at the time. We'll, we'll just say that. Yeah. We've gotten better, but we weren't a good team. Yeah, it was a learning experience. Humdiggity. <laughs> yeah, you'd think we would have learned these things in college, and technically we probably did, but not actually. The problem is, while you're in college, you only have until four weeks from now to get it done. And when you're in real life, you have you to have, get it done. <laughs> yeah, you have until you say you're done to get it done. Uh, which, that was, yeah, that was a thing with this product. We definitely wanted to reach completion at some point, but... One of the things that happens is all of these little details just keep popping up. Like, there's a difference between making a student project, which is good enough for a student project, and a product you actually want to try to sell to people. And so you run into all these little details that you wouldn't think of, but then it's just like, oh, yeah, and we need to do this, and we need to do this, and oh, wow, of course, we need to do that. How did we not do that earlier? Yeah. And that's, uh, and I mean, that's one of those things of where, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but pre-planning is great. And it's one of those things that we're, uh, we'll say we're keeping very abreast of as we move forward on other products. 
We're also yeah. probably going to be moving into some slightly better day-to-day and week-to-week yeah. <laughs> systems. Oh, yeah. It's, we didn't uh, have anything, then. Yeah, we didn't even have, like, a whiteboard or a calendar or... <laughs> Let's build this! Oh, yeah. God! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we talk about flying everything. by... <laughs> <laughs> it, it was definitely flying by the seat of your pants. But... I digress. I feel like uh, I feel like we kind of covered this particular portion of this topic. But, yeah, I, there's but, not a whole lot else to say about it without getting extremely technical. But, I think. But but technical jargon. I could go all day. <laughs> of course, I could talk about how exciting it was to try to debug memory that was for some reason breaking, and oh, why is this thing being connected over here when it should have been gone already, or who for, knows what else? For all of you who ever decide to make a video game and and make a a 100% memory manager on it in C STD library uses its own memory manager and will screw you over occasionally. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, the debug libraries are very useful because they allow you to do things like figure out what the call stack looks like. <laughs> yeah. You want to you wanna see a game run at uh, seconds per frame? Try uh, taking a full call stack recording every allocation. <laughs> I remember that. Oh, yeah. Here's a 7 gigabyte text file. How do we open it, guys? <laughs> That's right. Notepad's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I stop at 128 megabytes. I don't know what you're talking about. That's where OnePad came in handy, and then you couldn't find anything. Yeah. <laughs> we had to write a program to clean up our debug output. <laughs> I remember that, right? Because I had to like remove duplicated entries or something. Yeah. Yeah, I remember because I had to parse it to try to figure out what was actually relevant information. <laughs> Anyways, we could go on forever. But yeah. So uh, with that, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a heads up. Our next spot is going to be about the tools specifically that we used to make Highway to the Moon. Specifically, you know, a little bit about the development of them and some of the evolution of their design and, uh, you know, a bit about how and why. So, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and move on to the sign-off. Cantier, signing off. Dusty, signing off. And this is Redcoat, signing off. Play the games you want to play, boyos.